Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 11 For Whom I May Die. We need to talk. Victor repeated, but quieter, as though he were saying it to himself. Right now there are three champions, he continued, looking straight at Hermione. But two of them are from Beaubaton, and are you not friends? Hermione cocked her head. We are, she said, unsure where this was going. Victor held out his hands, palms up. Then you are seeing how this puts me at a disadvantage. Hermione, though she understood, shook her head. I'm not going to withdraw, she said, even if you ask nicely. Maybe if he asked very nicely, Hermione said with a sigh, but Hermione ignored her. No, that is not what I am saying at all, Victor replied. No, but do you see, you and she are friends, and you and I are friends, or at least we are being close to friends for having just... Dimitri elbowed Victor sharply, and he got back on track. You are clever! And I am sure that any friend of yours who was made the champion is also very clever, and so I am thinking, what if we worked to together, all three of us? Hermione didn't think it was a good idea, but there were several reasons for that. While she was deciding which of them to advance first, Fleur spoke up. We are prohibited from obtaining help from the staff, but not from other students, not even from other champions, Fleur said, sounding intrigued by Victor's offer. "'I know, but that isn't the point!' Hermione exclaimed. "'Victor, won't your headmaster get mad if we cooperate?' "'It is true, but what he does not know cannot hurt him. "'Besides, as I told you already, I am not competing for him,' Victor replied. "'But surely the rest of your school would be unhappy?' Hermione said. Haywood still loomed large in her mind, and though Victor seemed like somebody who could take care of himself, the displeasure of his schoolmates surely wouldn't make his life easier.' Victor shook his head, and, folding his arms, replied, "'Darmstrang was the school of uh, Grindelwald's many years ago, but now I am alive, and he is not. So it is Dimitri and I who will decide what kind of school Darmstrang is to be. I say that Darmstrang is to be a school for upright students, and that is how I will act in tournament, no matter what Headmaster Krokorov wants of me. The only one who can beat me is myself, because—' All I must do is my very best. Then why are you concerned with Amani and I working together against you? Fleur asked, and for a moment Victor looked like a petrified cat. I love you. How, how do you say? I could do better if we are helping each other, I think. Victor fell silent for a moment, his eyes going sideways in thought. Also, is it not so that there is something wrong with this tournament? I do not understand what it is, but what I know is that you are a student of Bobaton, not of Hogwarts, and should not be the Hogwarts champion. Also, my headmaster should not be inviting here Martvago, or any other person who is working for Russian government. Why not? asked Hermione, wondering what the Russian judge had to do with it. He is hating her very much, or anyway, her government he hates... 
I am not, uh, I do not know the particulars, but Russians mostly do not go to Darmstrang because they are isolationists. Isolationists, not why. They are isolationists. And all their children must go to one school or else they're never Russians again. So there's something to do with politics, Hermione said. And she thought back to October and his adamant desire that Hermione come to Hogwarts. Yes, it is so, Victor said. Karkaroff attended Darmstrang and is not welcome any more in Russia. And also he believes in blood, uh, blood like Blood purity? Dimitri supplied, and Victor nodded. But the Russians, they do not do so much. Such are the ways of Darmstrang and Kodostritz, I am told, Victor explained. I am thinking that Master Kakarov wants to prove his politics by my victory, and so has brought Maradvago in order that Russia can behold it. And because of that, you want us to work together? Hermione said. Yes, let us work together, and we will practice and study and all the rest, and when we compete, we will do so for ourselves and not for our schoolers, Victor said. But we will stand together. "'against all other things. "'I do not know what this headmaster Riddle has planned, "'nor my own headmaster, "'and I do not know but that there are other things "'of which I have no knowledge, "'and it seems to me that we should be friends together.' "'Fleur frowned pensively, but glancing at Hermione said, "'We accept your offer?' "'It was a little frustrating that Fleur had spoken for her, "'but also understandable, and anyway, "'Hermione would have said the same thing.' "'On one condition,' added Hermione. Fleur raised an eyebrow, but before she could do or say anything more, Hermione turned to Dimitri and said, "'You have to help me learn Occlumency. "'I'm going to be studying with someone else, but you actually know it.' "'But I am not being a good teacher,' Dimitri protested. "'It doesn't matter. "'I need to know Occlumency more than anything. "'I'm going to be working with someone from Hogwarts, but you're older.' And Knott has only recently started learning. If you know more than him, then I need to know those things as well. Now Victor turned to Dimitri, too, and looked at him with beseeching eyes. Dimitri sighed and sipped thoughtfully from his flask. Fine, fine, I am doing this thing for you, but I will have my own conditions for you as well, which are the following. First, that I may depart at any time or refuse to answer any question, and second, that if I ask from you a favor, that you will consider it very hard before you say yes or no about it. Hermione thought this over. But I'm not obligated to actually perform it. Only to consider doing so. She looked back and forth, from Dimitri to Fleur to Victor to Dimitri again. What is it? Dimitri pursed his lips. I do not know, he admitted. That is why I am not asking that you will certainly do the thing which I will ask of you. It would not be fair to ask for payment before the price is stated, and anyway I do not think you would accept— which would be good if I wanted simply to deny you, but oh, you have gotten Victor's sympathies now, so how can I deny you now? Thus I ask only that you consider something, which I think is a fair request. I'll accept. Hermione! So, really, he's, he's right. What's the harm? And he's asked for nothing else in return, and really, if you think about it, that's unfair of me, but I don't know what else I could offer. It isn't like I would throw the tenement for him. I, I never, I would never ask, Victor stammered. I know, Hermione smiled, and it's appreciated, but I really don't know what I could give, and Dimitri hasn't asked for more, and it really is just a promise to think over something carefully. 
Fleur narrowed her eyes at Dimitri, but said nothing more on the matter, which Hermione counted as at least a moderate victory. So I accept. We were going to be working on Tuesday evenings after dinner. Will that work for you? It is as good as any other. I have only dueling on those mornings, Dimitri said. After they decided when and where to meet again, Victor and Dimitri left, Patfoot, having taken a liking to them, or perhaps just desirous of a stroll around the grounds, followed after them. It must be nice, Hermione thought, to be a dog, or at least one so well cared for. A castle full of people to pet you, and a forest to explore and chase deer in, as an owner who, for all his faults, seemed not to be bad in a way that a dog could understand, and who was extremely generous with the table scraps. "'There's something that we need to talk about,' Hermione said, as soon as she thought the others were gone for good, and Fleur straightened to attention. "'But not here. I want to talk in private, back in the carriage.' Fleur nodded, then looked around the hospital wing. On the opposite side of the aisle, Derek still slumbered peacefully, no closer than waking than at any other time since Riddle had put him to sleep. I do not think that Madame Pomfrey will be back very soon. You shall rest. There was a moment when Hermione thought to argue. There was so much wrong, and so much she needed to explain to Fleur, and there was a part of her which simply wanted to get away from Hogwarts. That moment ended when Fleur put her hands on Hermione's arm, and, well, it felt too good and relaxed her too much for Hermione to muster up a fight. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad to sit here a moment just to savor this brief calm. It felt as though there were a storm coming, if one hadn't gotten here already, but for all that had happened to her in the past day, none of it felt so bad right now. Dawn poked through the windows before Hermione realized it. Perhaps the time had slipped away, or maybe she had fallen asleep, dreamless without realizing it, Either way, Fleur was there, still beside her, vigilant and wakeful as though it had been just a few short minutes. Madame Pomfrey arrived not long after, and after one more examination she pronounced Hermione fit and healthy. Hermione's things were already gathered together in a bag that Fleur handed to her, and then they headed back to the carriage. In the distance, Hermione thought she could see the Black Lake move, and she wondered whether it was a trick of the light or something magic, or just that it was large enough to have waves tall enough to be seen even from the castle in the early morning glow. On the way to Hermione's bedroom, they were intercepted briefly by Adalia and Lino. "'You know the party was for the champion, right, Hermione? Your books could have waited another night,' said Adalia, who, despite the astonishment, looked as pleased as a wolf with a platter of lamb fries. "'We need to do sometime. You have to show me what that cup saw, and I didn't.' Lena, standing beside her, seemed glacial in comparison, cold and distant, and concealing more than Hermione could guess. "'Whatever you need will help you find it,' he said. "'Thank you,' Hermione said. It was hard to know what else to say when she needed more than anything else to just speak with Fleur for a moment, and she didn't even know what they knew, if anything, about the events of the previous night. "'Thank you,' she said again. And that was enough, for Lena understood that it would have to be enough, and he and Adalia passed by them. When Hermione sat down in her bed, part of her was, just for a moment, tired all over again, as if she hadn't gotten a wink of sleep in the hospital wing. Ever so slightly drowsy, her mind drifted back to Haywood. Then the bed shifted beneath her, as Fleur's weight settled on it as well. The moment passed, and Hermione was in the present again, here with Fleur. Victor is right, you know. I think that something big is happening here, Hermione said. Maybe too big for me to get the shape of it yet. There's this story about these blind men who come across an obstruction in the road and they decide to feel it out and see what it is. 
one of them says it's a broom and another says that it's a pillar and, well, anyway, it's an elephant and they've been grabbing the tail or leg or whatever. It's like that and I can't tell whether I'm blind and just drawing the wrong conclusions. Fleur smiled. You are rambling around. Right. What I'm trying to say is I don't know anything about what's going on with Dunstrang or if, even if there really is anything going on with them, but I do know that I was put here, Fleur. I don't know how my name was put in the goblet, and I don't really know why I'm here to begin with, but Laurent October, the third most powerful man in France, directly intervened to make sure that I could come, against Madame Maxime's objections. That's why I asked you not to be mad at her. I don't know for sure, but if I'm right, then she didn't have a choice about Beaubaton joining the Triwizard Tournament, no matter what she thought about Britain and Hogwarts. The thing is, though, I'm not sure that October really cares about the tournament. I think it was just to get me in Britain. Fleur was silent for a few seconds. But you don't know for sure? No. There was something about Riddle, though. October and I talked a few days ago, and he wanted to know if Riddle had spoken with me, or, or at least I think October wanted to know that. I think he obliviated me, Fleur, Hermione said. And her friend's eyes flared wide with rage. There are things from our conversation that don't make sense, and things I don't quite remember, and I, I found a note in my pocket, in my own handwriting, Fleur, telling me that I had to protect my mind. Fleur's face went up with understanding. This is why you wanted to study Occlumency. The Hermione who wrote that passage knew more than I do, and I may never figure out exactly what she knew. I don't know if it was the only thing I could think to tell myself, and I was grasping at straws, or if I really thought it would help. But I do think I should follow my own advice, at least until I come up with a better plan. Like what? Hermione shrugged. If I knew what a better plan was, then I wouldn't have to come up with it. Then we need to apprehend October's purpose. Fleur rested two fingers against the side of her jaw and thought, I will send a letter to Baptiste. He still works for the government. Maybe he can find something useful. Hermione considered it unlikely that Baptiste would know anything, since he had been working for the Secretariat for Foreign Affairs for only a handful of years, and if he had been told anything, then it was probable that the chiefs had forbidden him from saying it. But still, it's worth a try, she acknowledged. Does Madame Maxime know of what October did to you? No, and I don't want to tell her, not yet. I'm not sure what she could do about it, and worse, if she tried, that might get the school in worse trouble. Fleur narrowed her eyes. Bobeton is not with your safety, she hissed. I would set this school on fire myself, if necessary. Hermione almost asked which school, but on reflection considered that both might be the answer. I'll tell her later, once she might be able to do something, but not now. This will have to be sufficient, I suppose, Fleur said after a short silence. But I'm not happy about it. She spoke again with Madame Maxime, but it was only to give assurances that she was all right, and there was nothing that either of them could do about the tournament. The rest of the day was spent with the others, hearing dueling stories from Medallia and maybe making fun of them a little with Lino and Vicente, listening to Sunday radio dramas on the wireless, looking at old maps with Samara. And there was food enough left over from the party, and in ones and twos the others fetched extra snacks from the great hall at mealtimes, so Hermione had no need to leave the carriage, and hardly noticed the day as it passed by. 
It still wasn't clear when or what the others had been told, but maybe that didn't matter. These weren't just Fleur's friends, they were her friends. That night, she went to sleep happy. I want you to withdraw. That night, she awoke crying. Fleur was there by the time that Hermione was fully aware of herself. There was no telling how long Fleur had been there or what she had seen or heard. Hermione wasn't sure that she wanted to know. She wanted to look strong, to be strong. And she was afraid to learn whether she could survive Fleur's pity. But support was not pity, was what Fleur told her, or which Hermione told herself. It was hard to tell, in that twilight space between night and day, what happened, what was happening, and she must have forgotten some things that had happened, and dreamt some that hadn't. There were two things which Hermione could be sure of. That Fleur was there when she woke up on Monday morning, and that there had been no more dreams of Haywood. Hermione steeled herself before breakfast, nonetheless, knowing that some kind of confrontation was inevitable, but Haywood wasn't there. So the animosity of the other students made up for her absence. Before breakfast was halfway over, Hermione had nearly chipped a tooth on some scrambled eggs that had been petrified midway in their journey from the plate to her mouth, and her baked apple croissant was full instead of very unbaked spiders. "'I didn't put my name in the goblet,' Hermione said as her hand reached absently after a platter of raisin rolls, which someone had bewitched to flee from her fingers. She looked back and forth from Jenny to Longbottom to Malfoy. "'If you don't believe me, that's your choice. "'If you don't want to compete, then get out,' Jenny said. "'I can't. "'They tried to cancel my selection, and Karkaroff wouldn't let them. "'And none of the schools could accept me, including Bobaton, "'if I decided to quit the tournament. "'That's a lot of words to say, "'my school is going to have two shots at the prize, "'and yours won't get me,' Jenny replied. "'Maybe you could be a little more concise.' "'Malfoy pressed his hands down on either side of the platter, "'fixing it in place long enough for Hermione to grab a roll.' "'I don't think you could have done it, and I'm sure you couldn't have done it without the headmaster finding out. Whatever happened, it's over all of our heads,' he said, and he gave a disapproving look across the table. Hermione glanced at Longbottom, who shrugged. "'I hardly pay attention to the Quidditch matches. I'm not very competitive, but I guess some of us are,' he added. Ginny sighed. "'It still isn't fair,' she said, but then nodded tiredly. If you're actually a secret Hogwarts student, then you're evidently our possible best champion, she continued. If you aren't, then Draco is right, and somebody sabotaged the goblet. You're a fourth year, and I don't think that even a very clever fourth year could have done it. Near the close of breakfast, something caught Hermione's eye at the bottom of her soupy-yuan cocoot. That spelled the end of her appetite. But she fished it out anyway, curious about this latest breakfast sabotage. It was not another spider, or a false bottom, or anything of that sort, but a square of folded-up parchment, and it was as dry as a bone, as if it had not just been retrieved from a bowl of soft-baked eggs and tarragon. "'What does he say?' asked Fleur, and Hermione, somewhat trepidatiously, and expecting something like a letter written out of cut-out newspaper words, unfolded the parchment. "'Your presence at my office is cordially requested.' Please make yourself available at any time. Yours sincerely, it said, complete with a tiny, curling comma at the end, but there was no signature, just the stamp of a stylized phoenix in red ink. Hermione closed her hand into a fist, 
scrunching up and tearing one half of the note, then shoved it into her pocket. At Fleur's worried expression, she said, "'I'm not going to meet with him. He isn't my headmaster, and I'm not going to put myself in a room alone with him.' Not long after, someone caught Hermione in the back with a stinging hex in werewolf studies, and she made a sharp noise, almost as much in surprise as in response to the pain. Professor Lupin asked, in a sad, disappointed sort of tone, that the class not be disturbed, and that was apparently enough to prevent any other disturbances. But there were more students at lunch, and Hermione once again had to keep her eyes peeled for little jinxes and bewitchments, though all she had to deal with were nasty looks and a jelly deal that, at her touch, snapped toothily at her fingers and set itself aflame. There were no classes to occupy her on Monday afternoons, but Fleur would soon have arithmancy, so Hermione departed for the library. Either because their tempers were cooling or they feared Madame Pince, Hermione had no trouble there, but whatever the reason, it was only a brief respite. When Hermione returned to the Great Hall for dinner some hours later, so too did Haywood, with ashen face and flat eyes, shuffling forward between a couple of her friends like a shoddy inferior's. She didn't sit at the Hufflepuff table so much as collapse against the bench. One of the others, a hag with blue pins on her left sleeve, gathered pickled chicken and roast beast root on a plate for her, and Haywood reached haltingly toward it, then withdrew her hand. Shoulders hunched in on herself and arms wrapped against each other, Haywood leaned against her friend, and the sound of her crying was audible even where Hermione was sitting, more than halfway down the table. Longbottom shivered and turned away from the scene. "'Mr. Sable,' he whispered, and then to Hermione asked, "'I heard that she spent the entire weekend with him.' Hermione nodded, despite how much she wanted to freeze in place. "'I didn't,' she stuttered. But the words ran out, and her mouth just opened and closed a couple times as she tried to find something to say. She hadn't asked that Haywood be punished like this, or even that she be punished at all. The only thing she'd wanted was for Haywood to no longer be a danger to her or her friends, and she hadn't even asked for it. Hadn't expected a request would be granted had she made it. She hadn't even known there was a Dementor at Hogwarts. Her mange too and radish salad was suddenly as unappetizing as a pile of spoiled meat. "'It's not your fault,' Fleur said, knowing her mind as well as any legilimens could. "'Eat,' Fleur said, and Hermione ate, even if each bite felt like dust in her mouth. Hermione retired to bed early. Mindful of what had happened the night before, she stuffed a blanket into the space between her bedroom door and transfigured a few old clothes into something that, while ugly, could be stuck on the walls. It was hard to bewitch oneself, and Hermione didn't know any other spells that could keep things quiet, but good old fabric could soften sounds, too.' Breakfast on Tuesday was more of the same, with a camouflaged poison pin in her chair to start things off, not fatal but uncomfortable. Hermione kept her cool, and with encouragement so did Fleur. They'll have to burn themselves out eventually, Hermione said, as she cracked open her egg to reveal what was either a very bad yolk or a lump of troll snot, and for a couple of hours it even seemed to be true— during history of magic, some of the Hufflepuffs and Slytherins glared hard enough that Hermione might have worried if she thought any of them were skilled enough to cast an evil eye at their age. And Professor Tracar ignored Hermione's questions and every time she raised her hand, but it was mostly untroublesome, if a little dispiriting. When class ended, Hermione found that her bag was glued to the floor, 
and by the time she undid the adhesive charm, most of the other students had already left. Just outside the doorway, a couple of those who were ahead of her suddenly stopped. Hermione almost bumped into one of them. He turned around so suddenly, in fact, that for a moment she thought she had, and an apology was almost on her lips when she was jostled by one of the students to her side. Another stuck their foot out just as she was pushed from another direction, and Hermione barely had enough time to raise her arms before she met the floor. "'You should watch your step in Hogwarts,' said a student. "'The floor can move beneath your feet.' Hermione drew her wand, and— "'There will be no spellcasting in the hallway,' Professor Trakar shouted. "'They were—' Hermione began, but Professor Trakar looked at one of the Hufflepuffs who had been walking behind her, and gave him a warm, questioning smile. "'She tripped, Mum,' he said. "'We were helping her up.' Five points each to Hufflepuff and Slytherin for lending assistance to the visiting student,' Trakar said, and Hermione's glare fixed itself on the vampire instead. "'Trade carefully.' "'Everyone,' Trakar advised. "'Anyone can be given detention, "'even if you've run out of points to lose, "'or have none to begin with.' "'You can't send me to the Dementors,' Hermione said. "'Lucky you,' said the Hufflepuff, sneering. "'Hermione brought her wand out again "'as soon as Trakar turned her back "'and kept it there as she got to her feet, "'back against the wall. "'Heading to Transfiguration was a tense affair, "'not least because they were all going there together, "'but the class itself was much better.' Someone tried to catch Hermione with another stinging hex, but Professor Crouch noticed, turned her attacker into a salamander, and stuck him in a glass jar. After that, no one seemed willing to interrupt the lesson again. There were certain benefits, Hermione observed, to unusual disciplinary measures. Though involuntary human transfiguration was a little too extreme for her to countenance. Lunch wasn't so bad, either. Hermione had been able to tell Malfoy and Longbottom what had happened on the way to the Great Hall, and... She had them, Ginny, and the rest of the students from Beaubaton to keep an eye out on her behalf. For all that her small Hufflepuff defense trio could do, however, they were unused to bodyguard duty and outnumbered, and one of the Gryffindors got her with a tooth-enlarging jinx during ghoul studies. However much respect Professor Lupin could command in werewolf studies, it was non-existent in his other class. He asked Hermione to visit the hospital wing, which she could understand, and then dismissed her from future classes until future notice, which was more difficult to accept. Somehow his unwillingness to intercede hurt her more than Tricar's unsubtle endorsement. Longbottom, no, Neville, accompanied her. "'It isn't you,' he told her as they went. "'Professor Lupin has always been—well, he's not much of a bulwark against the Gryffindors, even though he's the head of house. The headmaster goes up to their common room more often than he does.' Before the plates vanished and dinner ended— Hermione slipped away from the table and headed to a room at the end of the longest corridor on the fifth floor. While she waited for the arrival of either Dimitri or not, or some angry Hogwartsians looking to jinx her, Hermione tidied up a little to make the room more comfortable. It hadn't been used much since it stopped being a Muggle Studies classroom, and it was mostly bare except for dust, cobwebs, a couple of rickety chairs, and an inexplicable pile of rubber ducks. From these, Hermione transfigured two Berger armchairs, and a sort of plushy mass that could not, by any stretch of the imagination, be called a chair, but at least was soft enough to sit on. The Durmstrangers mostly kept to the Slytherin table, so it was no surprise to see that Demetria and Knott had arrived together, nor even to see that Padfoot had accompanied them, with a gnawed chicken bone in his mouth. It was another thing entirely that they had brought to their company. "'I wasn't expecting anyone else,' Hermione said. "'Dimitri told me, and I wanted to come,' he said, extending a hand. Ron Weasley. We met at Portrait Club. 
I, yes, we did. I, I just wasn't expecting. Ron's with me in mental magic. Not explained. It's important. This is important, Ron said. Occlumency is the only thing I wanted to learn from class. Well, that and the other half of it, I guess. Anyway, I wanted to say, Granger, what you did with the goblet, however you did it, was amazing. I've been meaning to tell you. I didn't put my name in, Hermione insisted, trying not to let her frustration into her voice or raise her volume. If she had to go through this routine once more. Ron held up both hands. Well, whatever happened, you've been brilliant about it. I had gotten a fight with Haywood. Anyway, I don't care whether you put your name in, really, Ron said, continuing before Hermione could protest or clarify. Better you than one of us. I just wish that Riddle weren't wearing a mask all the time so I could have seen his face when your name came out. Not seemed to disagree with this sentiment, but chose to comment on something other than the Great Goblet Affair. It's a wonder that Ron took the class at all, seeing how little he wants to be in the same building as our esteemed headmaster, let alone beneath his direct tutelage. Ron frowned at not, but softly, and after a couple moments he relented altogether. I'm good at it, Ron said, but I'd rather not open my whole mind to him if I can help it. Dimitri raised his eyebrows. Do not be thinking that I can help you against your headmaster. The first, most powerful defense against legitimacy is to not be the subject of it, and against such a one as your headmaster, there is maybe no true defense besides this. Well, if I make enough progress this year, then I could just quit mental magic, Ron said, while Nott looked at him with a horror that matched, if not exceeded, Hermione's own feelings. I should hope so, but hope will only go so far, said Dimitri, toppling onto a gelatinous mass of former ducks, then giving Hermione and the others an appraising look. So we will operate by the following rules. First, that no one should be holding a wand when they are practicing occlumency. Two, Dimitri continued, either heedless or uncaring how he messed up the numbering. This is not the place for the sharing of secrets, and no one should be saying anything which they do not want to become common knowledge or known to the headmaster. Last, that no one should feel compelled to answer a question or say any other thing, and likewise that no question should be asked more than once of any matter, save occlumency. There will be neither pressuring nor acting as the badgerer, not where secrets are concerned, he concluded. And Hermione thought of October, and his curious phrasing, that she and he were in a place where there were no secrets. Here there were many, and they were to be protected. Dimitri did not continue until he received verbal assent from Hermione, Ron, and Theo was how she probably ought to think of him. If this wasn't going to make them friends of a sort, then they were at least going to be more comfortable acquaintances than many of the people she had known at Pobaton, and it was worth something that he hadn't even raised the matter of the goblet. The first thing is the most important thing, Dimitri said. Oglomency is not popular, because it is a hard thing to learn, and because it is not useful for most people. Throw your eyes away, and not even a masterly gentleman can enter your mind, because the eyes, they are the window to the soul. The blind man is a perfect oculomens, you see? And if you will not pluck out your eyes, then wear the spectacles of dark glass or look away. But you might say, Dimitri, is it not rude to do these things? And if you did, I would say to you that it is so, and so most people do not, unless they think the need is very dire. But also, also, it is being rude to point your wand at someone that's a legilimens, and most wizards cannot do otherwise. Therefore, most wizards are simply keeping in public when they are around their rivals, which they are doing anyway, because you do not need to be a legilimens to cast many curses or even inconvenient charms. Hermione mulled over Dimitri's previous warning. But you don't think that would be sufficient against Riddle, she said, not bothering to phrase it as a question. No, I am thinking not, for first... I have had it told to me that Tom Riddle is one of those who can touch the mind with only his eye, 
having no need of words or even wants, and second, should I be wrong on this, it does not seem to me that he cares so very much about the politeness. Even Theo, who seemed the most sympathetic among them to riddle, nods at an agreement. Besides, we are in the heart of his power, Demetra continued. And if he desires to know a thing, then there are many ways for him to catch your gaze. You would have to avert your eyes from every student, for he might use the polyjuice to wear their guise, or bind you fast and force your eyes to open, and if you scratched out your eyes, then he might regrow them. And if you should use a spoon, cursed beyond magic's power to repair, it is not impossible that, failing all these other things, he might yet draw out your memories and view as something of them in his pensive. You've put a lot of thought into this, Ron observed. Well, I'm just being, I'm, it is a very worrying subject, do you not know? Dimitri said, stumbling over his words like he so often did over his feet. He reached over and scratched Padfoot behind the ears, and the dog settled down beside him on the other half of the shapeless ducky chair. Do not worry about it, Dimitri said, almost sighing it, and he took a sip from his flask. There is being a second thing about Noclamency, he continued. That second thing is this, that there is no one Oclamency. There is instead many practices, all with some usefulness or another, and they are gathered together because some make easier the learning of others, and there is little reason to learn most unless you intend to learn at all. Learn some emotional awareness, meditate a little, yes, that is good no matter what. Learn how to present one face while you hold another, or more inside you. That is a hard thing to learn, and few do except for the, how do you say, the psychopaths. Then what are we going to learn first? We will be clearing our minds. Not because Karkarov has been the horrendous person and checking our baggage for contraband, I did not have any room for the bringing of a Thromus rifle. So we will do this the normal way, which is to say the boring way, but perhaps it is better. Close your eyes and listen to my voice. We are going on a journey, and I am being your tour guide. The lesson was interesting, if not at all what Hermione expected. For the next half hour... Hermione imagined that she was on a boat on the sea, exactly as Dimitri described, however and whenever he described it. He was detailed in his descriptions, of the spray of the salt sea, of the rocking of the deck beneath her feet, or how it sounded, how it smelled, when a sailor to her left got seasick over her shoes, and every so often Dimitri would ask some question like, "'What is it that I said of the color of the moon before the clouds obscured it?' Hermione found it hard to summon up such images in her mind in the first telling, let alone recall them later. But even though Theo and Ron seemed to have an easier time of it, even they lost focus or forgot some crucial detail. Once, after Dimitri told him that he had gotten something wrong, Ron challenged him on it, and Dimitri replied by repeating the past several minutes of their journey, which, as far as any of them could tell, was the same as before, word for word. "'How do you remember everything so well?' Theo asked when they were done. I have memorized, Dimitri answered, which was absurd, but perhaps no more absurd than anything else they would be required to do for the sake of occlumency. At least Dimitri confirmed that they wouldn't have to memorize a twenty-minute script, not yet anyway. Wednesday was an improvement over the past two days. Hermione had no classes, so she was free to remain close to her friends or withdraw to the Hogwarts library, where she retreated between meals. It was hard to tell if the worst thing she encountered that day was the nose-biting coffee mug at lunch or a crudely drawn picture of herself, which she found later while walking back to the library, labeled Mrs. Sable. Hermione tried to take some comfort in the fact that it was probably better than anything that had already happened to her. That night she dreamt of Dementors and Haywood. 
Thursday was a lot like Tuesday, except that Hermione was prepared for Jakar. Draco and Neville stuck close to her on the way out, and she ran into no trouble on the way to Transfiguration. Lupin had drawn his line of the sand, so when lunch ended, Hermione walked back to the carriage with some of the other Bobatol students and played Scrabble. Fleurus ordered her to charms, which felt unnecessary but also felt nice. Professor Warren reseated Hermione at the front of the class. A moment later, Draco and Neville were reseated as well, all beside her. There were a few attempts at jinxing Hermione, or so it seemed, but Warren appeared to have a keen eye for that sort of thing, and Hermione noticed more students sent to detention than she did bewitchments. There was a high point which seemed, with every hour, sure to remain. Professor Vector brooked no disruptions to her class. She said as much at the very beginning of arithmancy on Friday, before anyone had an opportunity to try anything, and nobody tested her on it. Potions was likewise a welcome respite from the week-long harassment campaign, and a verbal warning hadn't even been necessary. As Professor Warren had done in charms, Professor Malfoy moved around a few of the seating positions and put Hermione, Neville, and Theo closer to the front of the classroom, almost in the midst of the Fehus and directly behind Draco and his partner. Whether the change had been necessary or merely an added precaution, the effect was the same, and by the end of class she was nearly able to forget the harassment campaign. Then came dinner, and there was not a single thing that anyone could eat on her half of the Hufflepuff table. The soup was acid, and the utensils were scaldingly hot, and the bread caught in people's throats and let through only the bare minimum of air. If the plan had been to catch Hermione's friends as well, then it had been poorly executed, because plenty of other Hufflepuffs had been caught up in it as well. Names were named, and Crabbe and Jordan were sent straight away from the Gryffindor to spend half an hour in the company of Mr. Sable. Of course, that somehow wound up being Hermione's fault, and it didn't dampen anyone's enthusiasm for going after her so much as counseled them against catching bystanders. Even before dinner was out, Hermione had somehow lost her sense of taste. Her stomach still needed food, though, so she kept eating, albeit a little more cautiously in case her sudden agusia was a setup for something more. When Hermione nibbled on a pineapple tart and felt something like paper between her teeth, there was nothing to do but pull out the letter. It was another summons to Riddle's office, of course. Hermione refolded it and put it among her books, but on the way back to the carriage she retrieved the message and methodically tore it into shreds that followed her path like parchment breadcrumbs. About a week ago, Samara had mentioned something about having once met Mertvago. It had seemed unimportant at the time, a fun tidbit, but Karkarov's invitation had been a reason for concern, at least to Victor, and Dmitri hadn't contradicted it. Then other things had happened, or one thing again and again, and he thought of Mertvago had fallen by the wayside, but tonight, Riddle and Mertvago had walked off together after dinner. That evening, after she and Samara had finished their Greek and Latin coursework, Hermione decided that now was as good a time as any to broach the topic. Last week you said that you knew who Mertvago was, right? We met at the 28th Sabatours, Samara wrote on her slate, and Hermione nodded. There were other book fairs in other countries, but according to Samara, the best were in Germany, and the Zalbera-Veltatorentreffen was the best of the best. We were standing in line to get our books signed by Sapia Mustakala. It was a long line, of course, so we chatted a little. Riddle mentioned something about an eye of providence. Oh, it's just a Russian thing. They all have one. It looks at everything, Samara wrote, and she tapped the slate again just to underline everything a couple more times in case it needed further emphasis. Who's on the other side? All the others. 
They all look at each other all the time, or at least they can. No one can pay attention to more than a few eyes at one time, and of course everyone's attention tends to be on some of the same people. Everyone? How could they? It can't be everyone, not really. New writing spilled out from the tip of Samara's wand. It is a... what did Chanel affair to call it? A Nifflerstadt, Samara replied, writing out her indecision. A moment later that was replaced with a definition. Nifflerstadt, noun, government by surveillance, in which all powers of observation are lodged in the hands of the people collectively, and in this manner the powers of the other parties are theoretically checked. It was strange, Hermione thought, but perhaps not much more than the wand-based castes in China, about which she knew very little, or the Academy State of Wagado. "'It's a really interesting story,' Samara wrote, as though they were discussing the last Wizarding Pulp book she had read. "'It's not an actual country inhabited by real people. "'You see, when the Russian muggles killed their king, "'there was concern that the Muggleborns would import these ideas "'and try to kill the purebloods. "'There were all these stories of Muggleborn plots "'and half-blood assassins and even pureblood defectors, "'and everyone worried more and more about these things. "'I read about it a little after meeting Crescentem and Mervago, "'and I don't think there was actually any danger, but I digress.' At first they just surveilled the known or suspected issues, but they kept suspecting more, Muggleborns, half the half-bloods, and then the other half, and so on, until there were rumors that the Committee for Magical Security had been infiltrated. Then everyone wanted to know who was watching the Watchmen, and so on, until everyone eventually was watching everyone. That seems unpleasant, Samara shrugged. I wonder what it really feels like. It definitely makes vacations difficult. There are places that will not let in an eye of providence. Mertvago told me a bit. She calls it her recording angel, but that was all. Hermione considered this. While we were in the antechamber together, after the goblet threw out my name, Riddle told Mertvago that her eye was showing. What do you think that meant? And then it was gone? Samara asked. Hermione nodded, and the slate soon displayed another message. She was told to turn it off. I thought it was just too far away to see. It must have been a very difficult thing to get Mertvago here if she has to keep her eye closed while she's inside Hogwarts, but it does make sense. Headmaster Riddle probably doesn't want her to notice a flaw in the wards or anything like that. Could an eye really do that? It's possible. Mertvago works for the Russian government, and they get extra powerful eyes to make it more difficult for them to sneak something past anyone who decides to watch. Between her work and where she is now— there would almost certainly be many people looking through her eye, and what one person might overlook can still be noticed if there are one thousand who are looking. There are surely some who will look and look and look again at the same scene, their eyes peeled for some little detail that might prove significant. Oh, that must be what Victor meant. He said that Kokorov had probably brought Metvanko here so that Russia could watch the tournament. I guess that makes sense. He's probably an expatriant. Expatriant, noun, one who is banished or expelled from Russia, most often because they did not attend Koldovsteretz, or refused their eye, or closed it and could not account for the missing time, having studied at Durmstrang. There will be many people in the stands, but everyone in Russia can watch it through Mertvago's eye. It was nice to get an answer, maybe even a couple of answers, but Hermione was growing used to the feeling that what she had really gotten were some answer-shaped questions. She was feeling that now, and it wasn't pleasant. Her letters from home weren't any more illuminating. It was good to know, of course, that Miranda was enjoying their preparatory course at school, 
and there were all the expected pleasantries from her parents, wondering whether Hermione had gotten the chance to go skiing yet. The safe answer was no, because there might have been snow in the most northerly reaches of Norway, but Hermione wasn't certain of it, and inventing things was the first step to being caught in a lie. Her parents had enclosed still photographs of themselves and Miranda, as well as a letter from her grandparents, who of course couldn't be allowed to know about the outpost, let alone use it. It was hard not to think about how happy her parents and sister looked without her, even when Hermione knew that they looked just as happy when she was present. She was gone so much, and sometimes Hermione felt as though Miranda viewed her more like a cousin who came over to visit over the summer and on Christmas break. Hermione had once heard a joke about how first-born children were there to practice on, and parents stopped once they had done it right. It was bullshit, of course, but the idea was there, just like the photo on her back. Muggle-frozen, as mundane as the three of them. Hermione's parents had withdrawn from her, and she from them, but they couldn't be faulted for having their hands full with a newborn baby and a dental practice not much older than that. The letter from her grandparents struck differently. Hermione saw them more infrequently than she saw her parents, but that infrequency seemed to sting them more harshly. They wanted to know what she was doing at school, about her friends and the books she was reading and what she wanted to do when she graduated, and there wouldn't be nearly enough time to catch up on all of it when they came to visit at Calais. And that she couldn't ever go to see her grandparents on the other side of the channel was something they had never understood and never could, as long as the French government insisted that they had no need to know, but which they had nevertheless accepted, or at least come to terms with. Perhaps because Hermione felt as though she owed them that much, and perhaps because there was already one wall of obfuscation between them, it was easier to regale them with half-truths and fabrications. Finally, there was a letter from Professor McGonagall, but its effect was only to raise more questions, which didn't even have the decency to appear answer-shaped. As far as she knew, and Professor McGonagall had worked with Britain's Department of Magical Law Enforcement long enough, back in the day, that she thought she knew pretty well, there were no close relatives who took after either of the Crouches in their looks, and Hermione's transfiguration professor looked too young to be the elder Crouch. Bartimius Sr. had never been the sort to care about any of the charms or potions that might make him look more youthful. Hermione decided to ask around, but made only middling progress. At their next occlumency practice, Ron and Theo were able to confirm that the transfiguration professor was definitely Barney Crouch Jr., but they didn't know anything about the man's father except that he had been involved in the ministry at some point. A couple more details slid into place, though, when she asked Draco and Neville, who remembered something about Crouch Sr. being on both the Wizengamot and the wrong side of the war. Then Hermione turns to the last resource at her disposal, the Daily Prophet archives of the Hogwarts Library, with the war as a chronological point to center on, and the text-illuminating charm to light the way, it wasn't long before Hermione was able to piece together a few more elements of the story learning that Bartimius Crouch Sr. had served as head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement during the war. In that role, he held a seat on the Wizengamot, and he used both positions to fight Riddle, even in the hour of the latter's ascendancy. When the Wizengamot was reorganized and Gilbert Wimple made minister in 1983, Crouch was sacked and lost the Wizengamot seat that came with his job. He didn't show up again for almost three years, when he appeared in the Wizengamot once more, or rather appeared before it, for crimes against the ministry which the Daily Prophet did nothing to elaborate on. Crouch was sentenced to life imprisonment in Azkaban. The younger Barty escaped that fate, perhaps because he played the key witness role in his father's trial, and then showed up a couple more times in vaguely propitiative ways before Riddle hired him as the new Transfiguration Professor. And not a little confusing for how it conflicted with the story she had first been told. 
It was one thing for McGonagall to think, in the chaos of the war, that someone had died when they had really just gone into hiding, but his behavior after the war was something else. Hoping that McGonagall could make sense of it where she had not, and feeling at any rate an obligation to update her old friend and professor on events following Britain's self-embogger from the world, Hermione wrote another letter that night, and sent it off in the morning with a fluffy tawny owl named Oliver. The rest of the weekend proceeded with little incident, until finally it was Monday again, and Hermione realized, with a little bit of surprise, that her birthday had snuck up on her again. She hardly thought about it at all, until, at breakfast, Samara suggested that she skip werewolf studies and take the day off. Hermione could hardly tolerate the thought, let alone entertain it, so off she went to werewolf studies, where they talked about what and why to feed a pig before you slaughtered it. A diet including shrivel things could prevent abdominal bloating. At the end of class, Lupin declared that since there would be a full moon that night, there would be no homework. As the students filed out, Hermione decided that she had no better opportunity to ask a question which had been on her mind for the past couple of weeks, and approached Lupin's desk. "'I've been reading about werewolves in Britain,' Hermione began, "'and I was wondering, if it isn't a sensitive topic, what you're going to do tonight?' Return to my quarters, take my final cup of wolfsbane, and listen to the wireless until the transformation takes me. I doubt that you'll see me for breakfast tomorrow, perhaps not even lunch. Is that common? I'd read about these islands that the Ministry had secured for themselves, but I wasn't able to find all that much about them. Lupin shook his head, and in silence, finished putting away the plants and fungi he had displayed earlier in class. Eventually he said, "'Very few adults choose to take the wolfsbane potion,' After all, Wolfsbane is a poison, Hermione said, only afterward realizing she had interrupted him. By that point, it had become a rote response even for her. He smiled. Yes, sometimes I feel as though a few minutes of the Cruciatus Curse would still leave me more spry than the Wolfsbane potion does. Transforming is a painful process, but the wolf will take over before too long if you let it, if the potion isn't interfering, which is another reason that many werewolves will forego it but I prefer to keep my own mind, nauseated and racked though it may be. Hermione nodded. Another question, if I may, she asked, and Professor Lupin smiled and nodded. There aren't any more werewolf attacks in Britain, are there? No, not attacks, no. Did all the werewolves in this class immigrate in the last year, then? Ah, yes, I see what you're getting at. No, none of them are immigrants. Uh, there was certainly a large influx shortly after the reorganization— and the Wizengamot is still debating how to handle further immigration, but we haven't actually had any new werewolves come in that way since Britain reopened. Hermione considered the timeline. Her peers in the class had been born a little before the reorganization of the Wizengamot, which meant, were they all bitten as babies? I didn't think it was possible to survive being bitten so young. Lupin shook his head. They were bitten voluntarily. It usually happens when they're six, seven, maybe eight years old. Hermione's eyes widened and Lupin, understanding, began to explain. Outside Britain, of course, werewolves are generally the subject of fierce prejudice. They are cursed creatures, fit only to be killed or forced to the fringes of society. In most places they must either blend in as best they can, hiding who and what they are, or live alone, or live among each other. Now who do you think will have the best life expectancy? Maybe the werewolves who try to blend in, if they're able to, but that seems like it would be hard. Unimaginably so. I expect it would be the werewolves who live together, Hermione decided. 
they can at least depend on each other, and even if they can't depend on anyone or anything else. It's just as you say. And where these groups aren't exterminated, they find more werewolves, or bite more, Lupin added, very quietly. Over time, practices accumulate, as practices do, some being useful for survival and others being happenstance, but they are retained all the same. You mean that they develop a werewolf culture? Hermione wondered. That makes sense. It's like any other, I suppose. Professor Lupin nodded. Now in Britain, every werewolf has access to the Wolfsbane Persian, a port key to the island reserves, or both, and so, as you did, one would think that the, pr that the practice or uh, situation would cease to be. Werewolves would get older, till at last they were all old, and then the last of them would die, and Britain would be free, or rather absent, of werewolves, just as it has been made absent of the other kind of wolf. He fell silent for a moment. But cultures reproduce themselves, said Professor Lupin. He spoke more slowly now, perhaps to keep from stumbling over his words, and Hermione smiled. She was well acquainted with those moments when one's thoughts ran faster than one's mouth, and this had to be a subject of great interest to him. There are some werewolves who care about that process. They consider themselves to be not wizards or witches who have a condition called lycanthropy, but wizards and witches who are also werewolves. There are others, of course, who disagree, but all the werewolves in my class are werewolves because one or more, or probably both, of their parents have lycanthropy, and they themselves joined the family tradition, as it were. Inevitably, all of the werewolves in Britain who would rather that there not be any others like them will get old and die, and those who are left will just be those who want to carry it forward. Plus a couple who change their minds, I suppose. What do you mean by— Lupin held up a hand, then turned away and rooted around a small bookshelf behind his desk. Here it is, he said. And he handed a book to Hermione, saying, I wager that this book could answer a few of your questions better than I could. Where were werewolves? And where will we be? Our past, our present, our future? Neil Barmston Hall. Thank you, Hermione said, stowing it carefully in her bag, sandwiched between two other books that would be better suited to taking a blow or a spill. When, when do you want it back? When you're finished, said Lupin. But now, if you'll excuse me, I need to get ready for my next class. Of course, she said, not a little sheepishly, and Hermione returns to the carriage to study, memorizing legal terminology for magical law and rhetoric and trying to work her tongue around the impossible sounds of murmish. Thus absorbed, the day rolled on like waves across a lake of academic fulfillment, with the occasional excursion back to the Great Hall for meals. As far as Hermione was concerned, less was more, and there was very little in the way of a party planned. Nevertheless, someone had let the news slip, and after dinner Hermione found herself in the carriage lounge with everyone who had some reason to call themselves her friend. Worse yet, someone had explained the rules of Scrabble Saucier in advance, and Dimitri and Victor had prepared for it. Haplift Vrixarong is not a word, Ginny insisted for the third time, as Victor counted up his points. Anil, didn't you say you went to Germany? Tell him that's not a word. I didn't memorize the dictionary when I was there, Samara wrote, but in the end, Ginny called for the dictionary, and just about died on the spot when Victor's word was found valid, and she lost every one of her hard-won points. 
Scrabble Sorcier had been a mainstay at Beaubaton since some half-bloods introduced it twenty or thirty years before, and in that time it had developed a bluffing component, which its creator had probably never foreseen. The student body had at least a dozen or two languages between them, and some genius, their name forgotten to the ages, had introduced a rule that anyone who challenged a word which turned out to really exist would lose as many points as the other person gained. Baiting others into an accusation of word fakery, or inventing a quick etymology to convince the table that some nonsense word was authentic and not worth looking up, were just as useful as conventional plays. Basque students tended to be highly rated, but a competition with Durmstrang might give them a challenge if today's game were any indication. Dimitri and Victor both had some trouble with their English grammar, but they were each well acquainted with several other tongues, and fluency in the Beaubaton delegation was mostly limited to English and an assortment of Romance languages. Rumple spunk. It's Norwegian, Dimitri said, grinning like a fool as he placed his tiles and waited for someone to challenge him. No one did. We're missing you at Portrait Club, Ginny said at one point. My brothers are worried they scanned you off. No, not. There was an invitation there, and Hermione very nearly accepted it. Her first time hadn't been all bad, and she liked Ginny, and even in limited doses, her brothers. But she had been told that Riddle sometimes showed up to Portrait Club, and that wasn't a meeting she wanted to have. Maybe later, she said. But with the tournament I'm having, it's just, it's a lot. Of course, Ginny said and Hermione hoped that she really wasn't disappointed and not just pretending to be that way. Not everyone played Scrabble at once. Even Dimitri had to take a break every two hours, rotating out and giving his place to Fleur Vicente. Eventually, Adalia figured out some sort of talon victor and was able to communicate it to Lino when they swapped. When the game wound down for good, they were in second place, but nobody was able to get any kind of fix on Dimitri. There is one more eclair, Fleur said as they were cleaning up. "'Are you sure that you do not want it?' she asked Hermione. "'It was strawberry. How could Hermione not?' But when she bit down, Hermione felt a familiar feeling, and she sighed as she deconstructed her pastry. Inside, folded small and nestled between two slices of strawberry, there was another summons from the headmaster." For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Salticide. The music is Amon Ra by Day's Witch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.